everyone. Welcome to the Crypto One Stack podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Hey, Unstackers, if you've been looking at the crypto markets or crypto Twitter over the past 72 hours, you'll know that stablecoins are top of mind. Of course, at the forefront is Terra's stablecoin UST depegging from a dollar. Mark Lamb and I go through what's happened with UST and the risks going forward with similar stablecoins. And to ensure we reach those who are just learning about the whole stablecoin landscape right now, we give our take on the different categories so you can start to build up a framework for understanding their different attributes and risks. Given the density of this episode, I will be splitting it into three parts, so hopefully it's digestible. Make sure to listen on. Let's dive in. The total stablecoin market cap as of this recording on May 10th, 2022 is right under $187 billion. Uh, to give you a sense of comparison, that puts the market cap of stablecoins ahead of Wells Fargo's. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison mark, but shows you just how far stablecoins have come in the past couple years. But that's not to say it's been a rosy ride up for all stablecoins. In fact, as we'll talk about later on in our conversations, not all stablecoins are stable. I put out a poll on LinkedIn today to get my network's sentiment on how confused they are at this moment about stablecoins. Um, and as of about an hour ago, 31% said that they totally understand stablecoins, which I'm glad about. 56% thought they understood stablecoins, but maybe no longer. And 13% are currently totally confused. Uh, so an interesting last 48 hours indeed. Mark, thanks for joining me on Crypto Unstacked uh, to break down the whole stablecoin land. Yeah, it's great to be here. So let's start off our conversation by talking about the categories of stablecoins in the market right now. How would you categorize the different types of stablecoins that we're seeing? We kind of view there being as three categories, and one we call kind of TradFi-backed or fiat-backed, which being uh, USDC, USDT, um, PACs, you know, th things like that that are basically backed by assets in the traditional financial system. So it could be um, treasuries and, and different types of, of fixed income assets that are supposed to be worth $1 
and and most cases worth one dollar. Basically, um, putting the money that is funding crypto markets back into the traditional financial system. Oftentimes, uh, in the case of treasuries, basically lending it to the U.S. government. And then you have what we call one-to-one collateral backed. So I think there are two stable coins that fit this category. Dai being one of them. DAI. It's a very decentralized stable coin. It's obviously not fully decentralized. Nothing in crypto is necessarily, you know, decentralization is a spectrum, but it's a decentralized stable coin that is backed with an as- a basket of collateral. You can create it using 150% of ETH relative to the value of the DAI. So you, if you have $150,000 worth of Ethereum, you can mint $100,000 of DAI. And, and you have a liquidation risk there because if Ethereum goes down, um, your Ethereum might get liquidated. It's, it uses this mechanism called a, a CDP or collateral pool. Does it always have to be over collateralized? That's the thing about the uh, one-to-one collateral-backed stable coins. They always have to be over collateralized so, or, or, or one-to-one collateralized. So in the case of FlexUSD, it's the same. The collateral on CoinFlex is what's backing FlexUSD. FlexUSD is always one-to-one backed, and the margin on the other side, the traders that are, are long the futures, uh, which FlexUSD is short futures, um, basically are, you know, the sum of these collaterals uh, creates over-collateralization. Um, and, and the degree to which that over-collateralization is just depends on how big people's positions are and what, what types of risk that they're taking. And so basically with FlexUSD, you have an asset where... Um, the, the USDC that people mint the FlexUSD with goes into buying Bitcoin and selling Bitcoin futures against it. So you have that for Bitcoin, you have that for Ethereum, that Bitcoin Cash, XRP, a number of assets where FlexUSD is basically acting as a market maker and it's buying these assets and selling futures against them. And it's doing it in an order book where there's no risk of it doing one action but not the other action. So if I, if I just go into Bitcoin spot order books and I start buying Bitcoin and then few seconds later, I start selling futures. Um, I do have the risk that in between those few seconds, you know, Bitcoin goes down and, and I, I'm not fully hedged or I lose money or, if, you know, if I close that position out, I'm going to have lost money. With this, we're functioning in a market called repo uh, where these, these actions are taking place simultaneously. So at the same time you're buying Bitcoin, you're also selling the equivalent amount of futures against it. And so that's very advantageous for FlexUSD. It allows FlexUSD to be fully redeemed as well because you can you can take delivery of the short position and basically fully redeem back into cash and so that ensures basically with some stable coins there's you know a 10 basis point fee like in the case of tether others it's free like in the case of usdc other others have more loose mechanisms for kind of pegging and unpegging and and we'll get into that later but with flexusd it's one to one there's no fees one to one for usdc redemption available at any time and it's because of that delivery uh, repo mechanism that we talked about. And so that's that's what keeps FlexUSD both fully collateralized, one-to-one backed, but also earning interest because it's getting paid interest on the, on the futures positions that it's short. It's basically collecting funding from levered margin traders. And it's doing so in a very low-risk way because it's fully collateralized. And that's what keeps it, keeps the peg intact and also allows it to earn you know, over the last six months, it's been around twelve uh, percent annualized interest. So it's a, it's a pretty good rate of interest, um, especially considering that it's it's uh, fully collateralized. I mean, let's go back to Dai and talk about some of the risks of holding Dai. Right, Dai has been around for longer than most of these stablecoins that we'll be talking about today, including FlexUSD. So 
talk about the risks inherent in using DAI and why potentially DAI's market cap hasn't exploded to the level of Terra, for example, which we'll get to in a little bit, and, and what parameters this stablecoin is existing within. Yeah, so DAI is effectively operating in a in a decentralized fashion. So it's um it's it's basically issued by this protocol called MakerDAO. And the fun fact about DAI is um this is where the critics say that it's not fully decentralized, which is that it's actually largely backed by USDC. So, you know, there is bit wrapped Bitcoin, Ethereum, a bunch of ERC twenty assets that are um, that are backing it as well, and and they're backed in this over collateralized fashion. But it's also it also has this mechanism, and I think this was a smart in, innovation on their on their end. Um, but it does get some criticism sometimes. But there was this mechanism that they put in to basically allow it to be freely one to one converted, like Flexusti, into USDC. It's issued by MakerDAO. It's it's kind of a decentralized stablecoin. But uh, you know the critic crit- criticism you could say is that it's. Um, very similar to to uh, centralized stablecoin because 60 plus percent of it is is actually USDC backed. All right, so we talked about two categories of stablecoins. The first one, uh, as you mentioned, which are the TradFi or fiat collateralized uh, stablecoins. The second category being one-to-one collateral backed stablecoins. Now we're getting into another very interesting category. It's the volatile collateral backed stablecoin category. Now, we might get a lot of comments uh, on this as this is uh, where the market is focused on right now. Uh, This category includes stablecoins like UST, USDD, uh, and also USDN as well. So let's go through each of these stablecoins, maybe starting with the one that the market is talking about right now, uh, which is UST issued by the Terra Labs company. This was an idea. I think one of the things that people have noticed about stablecoins is that they're mostly only up. So up only is a meme, but but at the end of the day, with stablecoin charts, it's almost completely true. You know, stablecoins have been a product where there's been net creations rather than redemptions. And if you if you assume that that's always going to be true, it's a dangerous assumption. But if you assume that that's always going to be true, then you can also um, kind of do away with the idea that it has to be fully collateralized or it has to be collateralized with something that's worth a dollar. Because um, if if I'm giving you if I'm giving you a thousand dollars and and you're giving me this IOU note, which is which is a stable coin, if I find this IOU note so valuable that I'm never gonna redeem it, um, then maybe you can run a fractional reserve model. Maybe maybe you can run a no reserve model or a different type of reserve model where um, you can assume that you're operating off of what is effectively a permanent base of capital and you can trade it like a hedge fund or you can do other things with it or you can and that's obviously um a dangerous model but it's not necessarily a fraudulent model if if you're telling your customers which i think the beautiful thing about crypto is there's all these experiments being run that are actually very very transparent about how they are in fact experiments the first one of these types of volatile collateral-backed stablecoins was USDN. And this was uh, several years ago, the Waves ICO happened and they raised a lot of money and they created this token. And eventually they realized they wanted to create a um, semi-decentralized stablecoin with it, which basically meant that people could mint USDN using Waves tokens. 
and they could take their USDN and convert them one, $1 to $1. So not one to one, but $1 worth of USDN into $1 worth of waves. So if waves trades at $10 and tomorrow it trades at $20, then the amount of waves you're gonna get for converting back will change and, and converting in will change. And so this kind of created this very fluid dynamic where creations became very good for the price of waves because they resulted in people buying waves. But redemptions became very bad for the price of, of waves because redemptions meant that you're really uh, going from having something that's worth a dollar to having something that's, wow, you, you have waves now. And, and you have when you have waves, it can go up and down in price. And when you hold a dollar instrument, you're really so, you are someone that is holding their exposure in dollars. You are looking to be dollarized. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're looking to have dollars. And so when you go back into waves, you don't just think, oh yeah, this is fine. I'm happy to hold dollars, waves, you know, whatever. No, if you bought waves, you probably were someone who wanted to own waves. And if you bought USDN, um, you're probably someone who wanted to hold dollars. And so the, the fact of the matter is everyone who redeems into waves basically sells the waves. And so as there are creations, it's very good for the price of waves. As there are redemptions, it's very bad for the price of waves. Mm -hmm. And UST and Luna uh, have a very similar model to this. Um, and Tron is coming out with another similar model called USDD. And then there's the NEAR protocol, which is uh, US, which, which is creating a stablecoin called USN. They all exhibit a phenomenon that Soros first described in a lecture, actually, ar around fallibility and, and, and reflexivity. And basically, the, the concept that Soros described was this concept that humans are imperfect and humans don't have perfect access to information. Humans don't have 100% true knowledge, right? Because if you observe something at the end of the day, it's framed by your own observation of it. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, observing something can change the nature of reality, ch can change the nature of what you're observing. But also um, when you take a look at something in a market, th that look or that buying action or selling action can also change other people's perceptions of that market. And so this was something he realized when he was discovering bubbles and we was looking at bubbles frothy markets you know he had this famous quote around when you see a bubble blow blow into it and 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 buy as much as you can to to capitalize on the bubble but he also famously broke the bank of england by shorting the british pound and and what he did there was basically realize that um in the absence of a player like him uh the pound was weak but in the absence of a player like him it may not fall. It may be fine. But in the presence of a player like him who could take on 20x leverage and short the pound in enormous size, um, you could actually get the pound to such a low price that other people saw that price and then they said, oh, wow, this is a, this is a problem. We should probably sell our pounds as well. We should probably do something. And the Bank of England, and, and they did, the, you know, the other market participants did. And then mm -hmm. the Bank of England eventually um, kind of depegged and left the uh, exchange rate mechanism. Listen to the next episode for part two.